Welcome to the Family OS Podcast. I'm Kate. And I'm Tanner. We're obsessed with creating the family life we desire, and we call it the Family Operating System. Join us each week to learn how to improve communication, be in control of your future, and love life. Welcome to the Family OS Podcast. My name is Kate Wendell, and I am here today with Dr. David Helfand. He believes that everyone deserves the best chance at living a happy, fulfilling, and peaceful life. Oh, that sounds amazing for, for everyone. Don't we all want that? After years of working in mental health, he started realizing that working holistically and ideally intensively with people often produced the most significant changes. Understanding the full experience of his clients has allowed him to provide better service and ultimately help them achieve their goals more efficiently. He's passionate about the work he does, wants every client to receive outstanding support. Uh, You became a doctor to teach people how to live a better life, which is uh, amazing because that's a lot of schooling and a lot of hours. Um, But you've spent so much time learning and practicing um, biofeedback, neurofeedback, yoga, meditation, mindfulness, health psychology, all these different lifestyle skills to help people live a more fulfilling life. Uh, first off, you know, welcome to the podcast. Thank you for joining us or joining me here. Yeah, thank you so much, Kate. It's a pleasure to be here. And, you know, I think one of the things I often hear about just the term doctor is people forget that the word doctor means to teach. It does not mean to prescribe or fix. And mm-hmm. so I, I see myself as an educator first, which also puts the power of healing in my client's hands and not like I'm a an authority for however long they work with. Yeah, I mean, that's a great distinction, especially nowadays where it seems so common that we're seeing doctors just prescribe a pill or, you know, do, do. I mean, even just a little side note here. I mean, I had to go to uh, a dermatologist. I had um, very bad horm- hormonal acne um, from postpartum and, and just what my body was going through. And everything was just about, this pill or this cream or whatever. And uh, some of it, they actually wouldn't even prescribe to me because it could, it could kill a fetus. And, you know, they're like, if you, if you have a, even a small chance that you could get pregnant, like we don't want to risk it. And I was like, okay, I'm like, God, you're going to put that in my body that could kill a baby. Right. And I was just, and, and ultimately I went to a nutritionist and changed all these different things about, my nutrition and took care of some gut health and like the acne started clearing up, you know, and I didn't even need to go on that medicine. So it's just very interesting how doctors have sort of like had this, this switch. So I, I'm glad that you, you know, first and foremost mentioned like we're a teacher, we're here to educate. And that's really the purpose of this podcast. So um, lots to talk about today. First off, I wanted to just um, help our audience have a little bit of a uh, backstory, like explain um, neurofeedback and biofeedback and sort of what this is and just sort of how the brain works. Sure. So how long do we have? (laughs) (laughs) All right. We could, we could, we could go for a little bit. Yeah. Right. So in in five minutes or less, explain the entire uh, neurophysiology of the human. (laughs) Okay, go. (laughs) So, I mean, I think I I couch myself and I, I, I call myself a relaxation and relationship psychologist because I believe that both are so important. And it, even that is just a small purview of the work that I do with a lot of my couples and individual clients. 
you know, I, I like to think of the nervous system as really the, the center of the self, right? The brain is sort of the seat of the self. And, you know, you could make an argument for all the other organs play very significant roles. And I would certainly agree with that. However, when we typically think of any kind of pathology or wellness, you know, we often come back to brain function, anxiety, depression, sleep issues, um, hormone issues to many extent as well. And just also just the way that you experience your life is through the purview of your brain, if you will. So I even help some of my clients say, well, instead of saying I am anxious, why don't you say my brain is having anxiety right now? It starts to create a separation that feels more wholesome, feels more like there might be a chance you could bounce back from that. And it's also just technically more accurate as well. So when it comes to basic neurology, again, I'm going to boil this down <laughs> really quickly. Yeah. You know, the way that our brain works is electrochemical for the most part. And I remind a lot of my clients that electricity follows the path of least resistance. And so the way that your brain operates is once you learn a skill, you create a pathway or a synapse. And over time, that pathway is reinforced and it becomes what we call myelinated and basically strengthened. It essentially turns into a highway, if you will, as opposed to a, a back dirt road. Right. And so a lot of times when people come to see me, they've been communicating with each other in such a way where they have this highway of negative communication, if you will, or they have a highway of anxious thinking or negative self-perception. And so what I tell them is that whatever you practice, you're going to get better at. So if you yeah. are reinforcing your anxiety, your anxiety will be really strong. And so my job is to jumpstart and pave those dirt roads over time so people have access and strengthen that part of their neurophysiology. And that's true with them, you know, themselves and their individual characteristics. And it's also true with the way they interact with the world and specifically in my, in my world, their spouse. Yeah. I mean, I, I think uh, the, the one sentence that you said that is so powerful is that if you continue to practice, you know, and tell yourself that you're anxious, like that will just continue to grow. Right. And what, you know, what we think becomes our reality, you know, and, and that's something that, you know, I, I mean, I've been hearing for years, uh, and I, and as I work with couples and moms, uh, we're, we're recognizing that those stories, you know, those, those things that we tell ourselves, um, over and over again are becoming our reality because that's what we're continuing to tell our brain. It like the, the brain will just continue to absorb what we're, we're saying to it. So if we want to work on negative self-talk, then we have to start saying those positive words to ourselves to start switching it. And like you said, you know, being anxious or being depressed, like there, there is a something that we can actually do very organically in not reiterating that in our brain to help lessen, you know, that, that side effect um, is, yeah, it, is I, there's, yeah, go ahead. So I just want to take that even a step further and give an example of how I teach communication skills and how it kind of um, mixes in with the neuroscience we're talking about. So yeah. your brain cannot picture a negative. And what I mean by that is if I tell you, I don't like it when you talk to me that way, what image do you have in your head? You have an talk image of someone talking the way you don't want them to. It's right. the same reason in sports psychology, we tell the psychologists or coaches, don't tell someone don't drop the ball because they picture dropping the ball or missing the, the shot or whatever it is. 
So one of the first things I do in communication training is tell people what you actually want mm -hmm. and redirect them in a positive way. So, you know, when you speak to me in a calm tone, I feel so much more love and connection to you. That is a very different picture than when you tell someone, I don't like it when you talk to me that way. Yeah. So one of the images I often use in, in couples therapy is imagine that there is someone scribing every word that you say and then there's a painter drawing a canvas of those words, not the intention, but of the actual words. Would you hang that in your bedroom? When the mm. painting is done, would you hang that in your bedroom? And a lot of times I hear from couples, I wouldn't even hang that in my bathroom, what I just said. <laughs> <laughs> right? And, and that even would apply to the self-talk because we yes. have negative self-talk so much. It's not even what we're actually saying to someone else and to our loved ones, but it's, it's what we're saying to ourselves. Right. And I, and it's, uh, you, you brought up another point that I've heard for children. So for the parents who are listening, it works the same way. I heard like, since we have toddlers, um, that they don't hear the don't run into the street. All they hear is run into the street. So I've been better at, um, you know, saying what I want. I'm like, stay on the sidewalk stay on the sidewalk, you know, and yeah. keeping them on the sidewalk versus saying, don't run in the street. So I've heard that actually for the, for the, for the young brains as they're processing, but it works the same for adults. Well, and with adults, it's almost more like an inception because we know the intention of what someone's saying, but the image that's conjured in our mind is a subconscious process that is just automatic. You know, it's not like when someone says to you, don't talk to me that way, going through a process in your head, you're like, okay, that means they want me to do this and this and this instead. You might do that cognitively, but the initial emotional response is more like the toddler you're describing. Yeah. Yeah. Oh my gosh. So fascinating. The more, the more that we have guests on who just have the, the brain expertise and this neuro, um, uh, you know, education, I'm just getting more and more fascinated with how the brain works. I don't know, maybe, maybe I'm going to go for a PhD one of these days or something. I don't know. But it's extremely, it's just so fascinating because our brains are so old. You know, they're ancient in how they operate. And we're putting it into the 21st century, century here and thinking like, oh, it should just magically be uh, adaptable. And there are just certain things that we really have to be aware of, like how it's operating and how we're going to make it really function well in our current times with everything that we're going on, you know, that we're dealing with currently, um, particularly over the past 18 months. Absolutely. And if, if people aren't aware of the book, uh, Why Zebras Don't Get Ulcers by Robert Sapolsky, mm -hmm. it is a fantastic book on stress response and physiology. And it really outlines how our nervous systems have not evolved to be in the world that we're in, that they're really very primitive still. And mm -hmm. I mean, that could be a whole other topic <laughs> the conversation. So just, just to throw it out there, why zebras don't get ulcers. It's, it's slightly technical, but it's also written in a way that I think most people could absorb it. He's also a, a researcher that has many TED talks and videos if you wanted to skip to that first and then get his book on the back end. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Okay, and we'll, we'll link some stuff up in the show notes too for, for our audience. Um, as we still kind of are, are like nerding out on the brain here, um, talk a little bit about um, brain mapping because I saw this on your site and how you have um, different brain waves that you were saying, okay, this does this and this is showing this. And I just, this to me is pretty cool. And I think it, it, it might help our audience just understand sort of what we're saying, how 
primitive it is, but also what we can learn about um, a, a human. Sure, sure. So brain mapping is a technology that's been around a while. Neurologists have used it for you know, looking at seizure activity. It's used in sleep studies to some extent, or that the EEG technology anyways has been in, in right. the field for a long time. And a brain map, also a uh, known as a QEEG or quantitative electroencephalogram, the way that I frame it is it's like a multi-point inspection of someone's brain. So when someone comes into my office, you know, we want to see, okay, so how is your neurophysiology impacting your experience in your life, your relationship, or you as an individual? And then more specifically, is there anything that is showing up in the map that would, that would give us an indication that fixing it would help you achieve your goals? So when I work with clients, I'm very goal-driven. You want to work on communication or your sex life or your co-parenting strategies or whatever it might be. And so having the brain map allows me to say, okay, so you tell me that when you wake up in the morning, you're totally exhausted, and then it takes you a few hours to get into your day. And meanwhile, you have to get your kids ready. So every morning is a battle and a struggle, right? And maybe your partner is a morning person and they just don't understand you. So we, we might do a brain map on, ideally, I'd like to do it on both spouses. So we're not just picking on one person, but let's just say we do it on the, the spouse that's having trouble sleeping. And we find out that when they close their eyes, their mind actually speeds up in activity or at the very least doesn't slow down. So they don't have the relaxation response we would typically see with someone who closes their eyes. That could be a sign of PTSD. It could be a sign of a genetic predisposition towards alcoholism or substance use. It could be just a poor stress response in their body. I should say poor relaxation response. They have a great stress response in that case. <laughs> right, right, right. And so that allows us, that allows me to say, okay, listen, I know that if you close your eyes and you don't have that activity, body-based relaxation and mindfulness might be helpful for you because it tends to increase that activity. I can also tell you that when you get really stressed, you might have more out-of-body experiences, either, you know, clinically kind of dissociative or more subclinically just a, the general experience you have when you're stressed. And so that allows, first of all, it allows me to direct the treatment. It also allows the spouse to kind of understand what's going on so that when they're perky in the morning and their partner is, you know, the grouch coming out of the trash can, <laughs> they can go, oh, that's because you haven't actually slept for eight hours and I right. got a full eight hours rest. Yeah. Oh, my goodness. It's um, yeah. And, and I think that's because one of the um, number one or I should say the number one topic and although broad. Uh, that we hear from couples and from who we've you know surveyed and 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 have interacted with, communication is their biggest struggle with their spouse. So so what so having a brain map, like how could they um, understand better about their brain and and how that could work to benefit communication? Boy, there are so many examples to answer that question. So I mean, just to rattle off a few. I mean, if you're having any issues in your left hemisphere around uh, Wernicke's or Brokaw's area, so language comprehension or speech production, mm -hmm. right? You, might, you may or may not be able to articulate your thoughts as clearly. Mm -hmm. If someone is trying to explain themselves to you, you may or may not be able to comprehend what they're saying as clearly. Mm -hmm. If you're having sleep issues, right? The evening might be a time where you really value trying to get to bed. So if your partner is trying to do their check-ins with you or bring up an emotional topic and you're like, 
listen, I really need to keep the stress low once the lights go down so that I can get the best chance at quality sleep, then that becomes important from a behavioral intervention and kind of interpersonal intervention within the couple. So, and then, I mean, there's all, there's so many other reasons as well. You know, if you're having, if you have migraines, right? Sometimes someone that has a migraine, you have to negotiate how that impacts the, the relationship or the family system as well. Yeah. ADHD, right? We're seeing an increase in attention issues even to adulthood. So that has obvious implications for how a relationship operates. Yeah. And we have ADHD in our household. So, and, and it's not something that I have. So I'm learning how to be able to communicate with my husband and my daughter who have it because our brains just operate very differently. And, and on that topic, I just, you know, in our house, we like to see it as a superpower. You know, it's just there, there, it's not a dysfunction. It's not a disorder. It's, it's just that our brains just work differently. And, uh, it's just learning about how to communicate and, and interact with each other in a way that works for, you know, all parties involved. Um, and, and some of the, the most successful entrepreneurs and inventors, like they all had something, right? It's ADHD or some level of autism, like something. So this is actually a, you know, a beautiful thing of how the brain works that, um, doesn't have to be a negative in, you know, for, for families who might be dealing with that as well. Um, Absolutely. If I can pick up on that yeah. for a moment, I mean, hundreds of yeah. things I tell most of my clients is that almost any trait that you can mention can be a strength or a weakness depending on how it's applied. Yeah. And ADHD is a, is a great example of that where you can feel sort of disorganized. However, I would argue most people that are homemakers probably need a little bit of ADHD. Yeah. They're balancing the kids and the dinners and everything else that goes into making a home, right? Right. There was some interesting research that came out a few years ago that, about how many CEOs in America have ADHD. Right, because they're they're just juggling all these you know multiple topics because they can be very focused, right? right? Yeah. And when we do brain mapping, we also know that there are many subtypes of ADHD. ADHD just as a label is actually quite broad. You can get much more specific when you look at actual neurological function. Mm -hmm. A lot of people that come in diagnosed with ADHD that I see in my office actually have insomnia issues, and they're just mm -hmm. in total fog. You know, one of the first things I ask is, well, what do you have for breakfast? If you're having cereal and French toast or something for breakfast, well, yeah, you're going to have attention issues later in the day. <laughs> yeah. Yeah. And that's what we're noticing with our three-year-olds because she definitely has, you know, all, I mean, and granted, she's young and still developing, but, but there are definitely some very clear signs that this is sort of her path of, of ADHD. And we've been changing various things in her nutrition with, uh, you know, sugar and gluten and dairy just to help her function better throughout the day um, and making sure that the protein and the healthy fats are more, you know, within her, her regular diet because we see a massive difference when that doesn't happen. Um, yeah. So just knowing that nutrition can be such a, such a, a simple, I mean, I don't want to say simple because it does take some effort in learning how to make changes, but, um, but it's, it's such a, a natural way to heal our body, um, versus like, Oh, I've got a symptom. Let me go take a pill for it. You know? And so kind of back to how we originally started this conversation and doctors and whatnot. So I do think, um, that, it, you know, that's just one approach for anyone who's listening and you're feeling like you've got, you know, something going on, just start with nutrition. 
learn how you can maybe make some of those healthy changes in what you're eating. Oh, it's um, so good. And I have a quick tip for the families out there is popsicles. Yeah. We make a smoothie a couple times a week and all the leftover smoothie goes into the preformed popsicles because our kids love popsicles and yep. they don't know what's in it. <laughs> yeah, I know. And that's, I actually found a couple of recipes. I'll have to share, share this too, where, you know, you make a, a mix like, so there's protein or healthy fat or still the fruit and you just blend it all up and put it in a popsicle. Yeah. And like, they're like, this is the best treat ever. And they're getting a more balanced treat rather than it just being all sugar, you know? So, um, yeah, I'm glad you brought that up because we've been making that change too in our house. Like, yeah, especially with summertime and when it's hot out, you, you want the popsicle and have a, a nice healthy treat. Um, let's bring this all, you know, first off for those listening, like your brain is telling you so much. So where you might be having some tension or a trouble spot in your house with your spouse or your kids, a lot of it is just, you know, understanding that this is how their brain operates. It's not because they want to be defiant or they want to be a pain in the butt to you or be, you know, like whatever, you know, we kind of come up with. So how do you help couples move forward? You have sort of a, a three-step um, process that you sort of work with couples on. So share, share that. Sure. So I have the three pillars of the relationship that I teach my couples connect, reflect, and redirect. Connection is about your sex life, your common vision for where you're headed as a couple. It's largely communication. It's the interactions between the two of you, right? The feeling of connection. Reflection is your own personal stuff, what you see when you look in the mirror. So it's your emotional intelligence, your ability to self-regulate, your self-awareness, those sorts of things. Um, your, your personal health would be included in reflection as well. And then redirection is your ability to co-regulate together, either as a couple or as a family. And what I tell couples initially is that I will do the redirection first because that's the hardest. You know, it's hard to be in the system and also impact the system. So I do more of the redirection initially, but then I teach them how to do those skills over time so that they really don't have to rely on me or a therapy process outside of their own relationship in the future. Yeah. And, you know, the, the reflection piece is what I think a lot of people think of when they think of neurology. But as we've talked about, you know, in our, in our conversation today, co-regulating has so much to do with neuroscience as well, whether it's the words you say and the image that's conjured in someone's mind, or whether it's just your own modeling. You know, if you pause and take a few diaphragmatic breaths as a spouse, chances are your, your partner picks up on that and goes like, oh yeah, I need to do that too. Mm -hmm. Yeah. I mean, it's, it's example, right? I mean, even with our children, we, we now are practicing breath work so much more in our house that you know, our three-year-old is, is recognizing it and realizing, oh, when I get frustrated and I want to you know, slam something on the floor, maybe I should stop and take a breath. And it's really you know, what, what the example is. And, I, and it's an important thing also for parents to see if you don't like what their children, you know, what your children are doing or how they're behaving you know, first look in the mirror, right? We have like, we have to have that hard conversation with ourselves and be like, am I doing this too? Are they learning it from me? And it's not to point a finger and say you're a bad parent or anything like that. Like we're all in this life learning and figuring stuff out, but, but to just then have that self-awareness and say, okay, you know what? I'm doing this. So maybe I should work on how 
I can do something differently that's more effective. It'll help me. And then it will also teach my child how to respond better as well. So, yeah. And it's a win-win, right? If you're self-regulating, which is then paying dividends to the family, it's it's a win-win all around. And it's amazing to me how many people come into the office or, you know, quote unquote, come into the office these days. Yeah, right. <laughs> and they say, you know, I just don't know why my son just yells at everyone when he gets angry. And I usually, the first question I ask is usually, so how do you handle you know, yourself when you're angry or when he does something you don't like, or when your partner does something you don't like. And they go, well, you know, I tend to yell. Gee, I wonder where your kid got it from. Right. right. <laughs> and there's, there's a great quote. I forget where I, I picked this up, but it's your kids are the least likely to do what you say and the most likely to copy at what you do. Yeah. A hundred percent. I mean, you definitely want to have them sync up right? You can't, you know, like you get your words and your actions need to sync up because they'll pick up on that too. But start with your actions. I mean, they really are paying attention to what you're doing first before um, they hear what you're saying. And, um, and, and, you know, as a a fairly new mom, uh, I'm I'm realizing that very, very hands-on. And I'm like, oh, this is how I'm behaving. And, you know, at the end of the day, we as parents don't really want to admit that to ourselves. You know, I know that's a, it's a hard thing to admit. This is what I'm doing, you know, and I've got, I've got to change. And that, but, but that's the best way to start getting a different result. And it works with your spouse and it works with your children. So wherever, yeah, wherever that gap is, um, start thinking about, okay, well, how can I make, because we want to point the finger. It's very common for, you know, couples, to want to, oh, well, he needs to change or she needs to do this more often or blah, blah, blah. And it's like, okay, maybe. And what can I do first to start changing the trajectory of how this looks? Absolutely. Yeah, how do you help couples just like come to that awareness and make a a first step? Well, one thing I want to to interject first is to bring it back to the neuroscience. You know, I think a lot of people think that if you tell your kids to do something, like, I, you know, I've told them three times to do this. Right. And sometimes I remind them in sessions, well, how many times have I told you to speak with more affirmative language as opposed to negative language? You know, humans take repetition in order to really sink it into our heads and actually make changes. But also for kids in particular, remember that the emotional intelligence, executive functioning, kind of self-actualization is all prefrontal lobe. And that is the last place of the brain to develop, usually around late teens to mid twenties. Right. So to expect a five-year-old or an eight-year-old or even a 15-year-old to be able to communicate their emotions and act accordingly. I mean, most 30-year-olds have trouble with that, <laughs> <laughs> let, alone, so let alone trying to get a, a five-year-old. And I think sometimes when our kids start to, to talk, they actually get language, right? And I'm guilty of this. And I look at my daughter, my five-year-old and go, oh, you're like a person now to communicate with me. And then I have to remind myself, no, when she's tantruming and acting out, it's because she can't communicate what she's trying to. And it's partly my job as a parent to understand what is she trying to communicate. And if people are familiar with Mark uh, Mark Brackett's work, he has a fantastic book and he's a researcher out of Yale. He has a whole emotional intelligence curriculum all the way through childhood to teenagers to adults. It's really fantastic work that he's doing. Mm. 
Yeah, I mean, another great resource. Um, thank you for that. Um, yeah, I, I, as you were saying this, though, I was thinking just in and also in some past interviews that we've had on and guests on the podcast and um, some of the friends we have that I'm learning from and communicating with um, our children. It, it's, it was a great um, piece of information for me to know that the that their their frontal part of their brain is not fully developed that has that that memory right so that's why as parents we get so frustrated that we have to say the same thing over and over again but it's because their brain is not developed there to actually have that long-term memory you know and i think um that's just really important for parents to know you know like that's that's why we have to repeat ourselves a thousand and one times um because it it's actually not because they want to be defiant it's because they literally can't remember fully um, because of the way they're developed. And I, you know, so just give, give everyone grace in the situation for that, right? You know, and, and I think it's just another good highlight to, to point out for parents who are listening. Absolutely. Um, and the same is true for adults. I mean, when you are in a highly emotional state, your brain is largely controlled by your limbic system, which is subcortical. Your cortex, the outer layer of, we think of as like the, the human brain is, most people think of the outer layer. They kind of forget all the stuff in the middle and yeah. lower. And when your limbic system is in control, you're not using your cortex. You literally don't have access to the rational parts of your brain anymore. And so, you know, when you're arguing with your spouse or with a child or the child is starting to infuriate you, you know, what I tell people is when you're in the red zone, which I define as a nine or 10 on the 10 point emotional scale, or a zero, by the way, some people shut down as opposed to explode. Right. When you're in that emotional overload of that red zone, you just have to take a timeout because that's where the really mean words are used if you keep pushing someone and they're in that place. Yeah, and it's also a great place to incorporate the breath work. You know, big, deep, diaphragmatic breaths, you know, and, and for, for since, Many people don't really breathe properly. They kind of breathe vertically, right? You breathe in and like your shoulders go up, right? So, you know, think about putting your hand on your stomach so that when you breathe in, your belly actually expands, right? It's like filling up a balloon. You know, just, just very simplistically, you know, describing it so that people are aware. You want those big, deep breaths because that will help lower your emotional temperature to be able to respond better in those more chaotic and, and heightened experiences so that you're not reacting and saying things or doing things that you'll regret later and just really won't help the situation. So that is absolutely true. To add to that, the half-life of adrenaline is about five minutes through your bloodstream. Mm-hmm. And so once you actually get very hyper aroused and agitated, the only solution is time. You need to stop the course of adrenaline and then give it time. So diaphragmatic breathing can certainly help. Most couples, though, once they're at that place, even a few diaphragmatic breaths or a a loving kindness meditation, they also just need the time for their bloodstream and kidneys to filter everything out so they can come back together. Yeah. Yeah. All of it together. Oh, so much good stuff here, David. Thank you so much. Um, Any other... um, just, you know, final thoughts that, that as parents are listening, that they can, you know, maybe take with them as they, they go through this, they just got, you know, a slew of information and, oh, it's the brain. It's, you know, all this stuff. So like, like what's the one thing that they could do when they go 
back home into their real life, having listened to this podcast that could help them just approach their day a little bit better? Sure. I mean, I, I think one of the key underpinnings of a lot of what I try to teach is you will get better at whatever you practice. Your brain will perpetuate whatever state it tends to be in. So if you are someone that is highly stressed with work, highly stressed with the kids running all around, you might need to schedule some downtime and you can use each other as spouses to do that. Hey, can you take the kids so I can go get two hours, get a cup of tea, read a book on the back deck and no disruptions? Or you might have to leave the house to, to accomplish that mm-hmm. if that's the case. And on the flip side of that, the more positive frame is that the more you practice relaxation, the more you practice the right affirmative kind of communication, you will get better at that. If you think of most behavior changes that anyone, any of these listeners that have made in in their lives, if you look back on it now, it's like, oh yeah, I just do that. But if you think to what it was actually like when you were trying to implement it, it, it often feels like a huge uphill battle. So what I tell people is just focus on a few moderate changes you can make you know, communication, self-care, whatever it is. And over time, it compounds and it makes huge differences. Yeah. And give yourself grace along the way. Not every day is going to look super awesome. Don't throw your hands up in the air and be like, oh, it's never going to work because you had a day that was, you know, not the way you wanted it to go. So um, I've, I've had to learn that myself the hard way where I'm like, I want, you know, the structure, the routine, the you know, it's going to go this way, da, da. and you know, when you got kids and work and so many different things, there's a lot of variables where it's not going to go the way you want. Doesn't mean that you don't keep making that um, effort to, to practice and keep going because it will start to fade. So absolutely. Great. So if I can end on one more neuroscience yeah. that I love is there's this quote in neuroscience: the opposite of love is not hate. The opposite of love is indifference, and that comes from brain scans of couples that are fighting with each other. And when we look at the brain scans of couples that are in a loving embrace as opposed to fighting, there's actually a lot of similarities. It's the couples that have apathy and indifference that we get more concerned about. Mm -hmm. And so what I tell people is that high emotional states are a chance for connection. Emotion is a chance for connection, whatever it is. You just have to know how to channel it properly. Right. Yeah. And that's why we have people like you to help along the way and and uh, resources like the podcast here to um, just you know help people make that first step and and feel like they're um, making progress in their life. So, uh, Dr. David Helfand, thank you so much for joining us and and being a part of uh, the Family OS podcast. You know, we really do appreciate your expertise in this. And you can uh, find more at LifeWiseTV.com, and we'll have all those things linked up in the show notes for. Um, anyone who wants to, um, you know, check out more online. So again, thank you very much for being here. Thank you so much, Katie. It was a pleasure. And I, I hope to have more of these conversations are so important. Yeah, we'll, we'll have you back for sure. There's so much to, to talk about. We'll, we'll do a part two. <laughs> Great. Thank you, Katie. Thanks for listening to this episode of the Family OS Podcast. We have a special gift that we'd love to give you. Text us the word POD, P-O-D, to 720-459-4219, and we'll text you back. Until next time.